The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Federal immigration agents have gotten increasingly creative about how they obtain data collected by city and state police officers to use for immigration purposes. And their need for that data makes sense. The number of city and state police officers dwarfs the number of federal immigration agents. So they want to use this as a kind of force multiplier. And and I document in the article a series of increasingly kind of creative tactics and legal arguments that the federal government used to try to gain access to data collected by state police officers without the consent of of city or state officials. I'm Alvaro Marañón, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, March 4th, 2022. Over the past two decades, much of the public's attention has been focused on private markets for individual data. But another equally invasive and expansive market has emerged during this time. The public sector, composed of the federal government, states, and cities, have created a substantially and rapidly expanding intergovernmental marketplace and individual data. It is used in areas ranging from policing and immigration to public health and housing. But this exchange around individual data brings about serious concerns for both privacy and federalism. I sat down with Bridget Fahey, law professor at the University of Chicago Law School, to discuss her new law review article, Data Federalism. We go into detail about the hybrid structures governing these exchanges of individual data, the risk and protections afforded by existing federalism principles and doctrines, and how and why data is power. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 4th, Data Federalism. The past few decades, we've experienced an explosive growth in private markets for individual data. Private firms are gathering more and more data from individuals. But in your latest article, you've looked into another actor in this area, and the private sector isn't alone, correct? Yeah, that's right. The article looks at the ways that our governments, the federal government and state governments, city governments, municipal governments have collected data. We've always known the government collects data from individuals, but have also entered into transactions with one another to pool that data and then diffuse access to um, government actors across levels of government. So it's not a new story in the world of federalism that our levels of government negotiate over their governmental powers. The new story here is that our levels of government are negotiating over new forms of power. And in this case, data is, as we see in the private sector, uh, a really significant source of power and influence. So our governments have gotten into that game. And this market you, you described is called the intergovernmental data market. And data has unique properties, correct? That makes it a little bit different from other types of assets? Yeah, so in the, in the world of federalism, at least, we talk about the federal government giving grants to states and cities in exchange for states and cities agreeing to implement programs according to the federal government's um, instructions. And so money in that case and administrative or implementation authority are the governmental powers being exchanged. This article talks about the exchange of data 
And it explores the ways that data, as you say, has distinct features as a form of power. One of those features is that you can both give a piece of data and retain access to it yourself without reducing your ability to make use of that data. So so although, you know, I'll give you an example. Although when the federal government gives a quantity of money to cities, it no longer has that money. Um, when the federal government gives a quantity of data to cities, it also retains a copy. So that's an important feature of data, which has been talked about a lot in the private world. But in the governmental world, it's an important feature because it means that the total amount of data to which governments have access is expanding. Data is increasingly sort of proliferating. This shifts in significant ways the traditional story about what federalism does. So federalism, we traditionally think about as dividing power to prevent the harms that come from its concentration. You see the phrase a lot in federalism scholarship and in judicial opinions that federalism divides power to prevent tyranny. Because data can be both retained and shared at once, it's not the case that data power is being divided. Federalism, in fact, I argue in the paper, is multiplying power. We're pooling data across levels of government, and then we're diffusing access to governmental officials. So this, unlike land, let's say, or money or other types of quantifiable goods, there's no scarcity issue, correct? Like, this cooperative federalism can be replicated at large scale and it's mutually beneficial for both sides. Yeah. And, and I'll just say it's, you know, it's mutually beneficial, at least for the governmental officials who are seeking that data. So, you know, in classic federalism frame, we recognize that concentrations of governmental power can have implications for individual liberty. I'll just give you a, a concrete example so that we have, you know, we're, we're talking about something a little bit more tangible. There's an enormous data pool called the National Crime Information Center. This is housed within the FBI, but the data is actually data gathered from state and local law enforcement agencies, along with the FBI, immigration um, and customs enforcement and other federal agencies. So it pulls together information that governmental officials are collecting about individuals at all levels of government and pools that data. And then it diffuses access. So one of the reasons that it's so easy to contribute data to the data pool is if you're a city or a state, you're not really surrendering very much. You're only getting something. You're getting access to this big pool and you don't actually have to give up control of the underlying data asset. That data exchange is good for the police officers or the immigration officials who want to use that data. But one of the concerns that the article raises is that concentration of data might give us pause from the perspective of civil liberties, the perspective of the people who are being policed or whose benefits are being determined by these governmental data pools. So it's certainly, um, I think, good from the perspective of certain governmental actors, and we should wonder about the implications of that data collection for individuals. Thank you. Yeah, it's absolutely a difficult trade-off for the small localities. You have very low entry barrier to entry to this wide set of data. And like you said, it costs them very little to do so. It's, it's a hard spot for them to say no. Yeah. So one of the things that we've seen over recent years is efforts by cities and states to restrict access to their data by either their sister governments, other cities and states, or by the federal government in order to effectuate other kinds of policies. So the sanctuary city disputes between cities and the federal government were largely about cities wanting not to share data with the federal government. So this illustrates the significance of data to governmental policy, and it also indicates the ways that the population can put pressure on cities and state governments to enact data non-sharing policies. Exactly. So these large data pools have information on people who don't really know what's in there and don't have access to the insights. And regarding this data pool in this market, you speak about varying types of transactions that the government engages in. 
And it's harder to, I guess, reconcile compared to like traditional exchanges with money or land. You can kind of see that things are being handed over. But here you speak about some discrete and repeat transactions. And I just wanted to talk about the Trump's 2017 Electric Integrity Commission. Maybe you could expand upon what you found through that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I do in the paper is I look at a a bunch of recent federalism disputes, you know, areas of tension between the federal government and states and cities. And one pattern that I see that I find really significant is that a lot of those disputes aren't about money or land or administrative authority. They're about data. And the Election Commission uh, is, is a great example. So after the 2016 election, President Trump established a commission to analyze nationwide instances of voting fraud. And in order to be able to do that that analysis, the commission needed access to data collected and held by state election officials. And so the commission reached out to state election officials and said, send us this data. There was a lot of uh, regulatory material missing from those requests. So they were kind of letters that said, basically, trust us, turn Uh, over mm -hmm. this intimate data, you know, turn over information about people's registration, how frequently they vote, their addresses, in some cases, their social security numbers. And most states, the vast majority of states, really took issue with the request because that data is incredibly sensitive. And the inability of the commission to access data held by states because states withheld it led, you know, I think directly to the closure of the commission. So this was an instant, a kind of high profile instance of states flexing their entitlement to withhold data from the federal government and affecting major policy by doing that. It's incredible. I think you spoke about how the database has information around 200 million people. It's an abundant amount of information. Yeah. You know, when you sit back and take stock of how much information our governments collectively hold about us, it's really monumental. And it's an area where you might think, a classic federalism proponent might think, This is an area where we want to divide control over that data, where a city might have access to one piece of information about me in order to administer my property taxes, and the federal government might have a different piece of information about me in order to give me a passport. And and each of those discrete functions could be justifiable uses of my data. But we might be concerned about the possibilities of the city matching my data for property tax reasons to the federal government's data for passport reasons, because it gives both governments just a much more panoptic picture of who we are. It allows a level of surveillance that people frequently don't expect when they turn over data to, say, a local government for a discrete purpose. So you're kind of describing, let's say, a a traffic stop where you give information about your vehicle that information could also be compiled with, let's say, your biometric information that DHS might have or uh, your housing applications, correct? Like all this would be compiled under one type of database? It's it's a little bit more complicated. It's a little bit complicated. You know, there's a, a, li- a difference between data pools where the data is discrete pieces of data about a particular person are all easily accessible through a single interface and kind of networks of databases in which access to one database, some some number of people for some number of purposes who access one database can access another database. The latter describes situations in which, say, a person's criminal uh, history would be matched to their housing application if they're pursuing public housing in certain jurisdictions. Um, so, so we do see these networks and compilations. One of the important things is that kind of standard data management best practice is to provide people with notice about how their data will be used. One of the concerns about intergovernmental data sharing is if I go to the state DMV in order to get licensed to drive, I might turn over, I, I, you know, I have to turn over a photograph or have a photograph taken. Mm-hmm. And 
that that's for a very particular purpose. It's for a civil purpose, not a criminal purpose. And that purpose is just to license me to use the roads. One of the episodes that I discuss in the paper is the FBI's effort to enter into these bilateral agreements with state DMVs or the agencies that oversee state DMVs to gain access to DMV photographs in order to develop and then deploy its facial recognition technology, which the FBI was using for itself and at the request of state and local law enforcement for criminal investigation purposes. So this is an example of a case in which this kind of very fundamental data management best practice that you should have notice about the purposes to which your data is put is violated by intergovernmental data exchange. Uh, Photograph I turn over for purposes of civil licensure comes to be incorporated into a database used to do criminal law enforcement. Intergovernmental data exchange can allow governments to kind of transgress some of the really basic intuitions we have about Mm -hmm. how data should be managed. And these types of exchanges even escape Congress, correct? I think you spoke about one congressman's, I guess, surprise about this. Yeah. So the DMV photographs um, and, and the FBI's facial recognition technology are a really interesting story because after the FBI disclosed what it was doing, thanks in part to um, great work done by some investigative journalists and some scholars at Georgetown's institute that studies privacy issues, there were a series of hearings, which I recount in the in the article before Congress. And you know, there were some interesting bedfellows in these hearings. These these hearings kind of you saw a very conservative representative, Jim Jordan, kind of you know, allied with members of the ACLU over the intrusion into individual liberty that these data exchanges might effectuate. And you also saw a kind of political process concern. And that concern was Congress wasn't aware that the FBI was creating this really significant, you could say enormous, database of photographs. And also that state and local elected officials generally weren't involved in deciding whether the state DMV turned over the photographs to the FBI. So one of the patterns that I document in the paper is the tendency of data transactions to take place kind of in the bowels of the administrative state and to escape sort of popular oversight, which is you know, both a kind of concern from a general democratic accountability perspective, but it's also a really unusual phenomenon for federalism because increasingly we think federalism, interactions between the federal government and states are structured by big statutes, you know, federal federal statutes and state statutes. So this is really happening outside of legislative structuring. It's a rare instance of like enormous bipartisan support. Uh, there was a lot of outrage, uh, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to expand upon uh, how these localities respond to these mandates. So you speak about how governments have sought workarounds around existing federalism protections. And I was wondering if you could speak about that, what protections are in place. Uh, you know, you speak about anti-commandeering. And mm-hmm. what's the current power balance between the mandates and these protections? Great. Yeah. So there's a constitutional doctrine called the anti-commandeering rule, which establishes that the federal government, if it wants states to participate in policy, you know, joint policy programs, it needs to invite states to join those programs voluntarily. The principle is that the federal government can't mandate that states regulate according to federal instructions or force states to participate in jointly administered initiatives. And the anti-commandeering rule is really about a kind of a statute in which the federal government would say, state legislature, you must enact this law, or state executive, you must take these specified actions. What I argue in the piece, and this is going back to our earlier conversation about the multiplicity of forms of power that our governments transact in, My argument is that the anti-commandeering rule should apply with full force to data as well. Just as the federal government can't commandeer state legislatures or state executive agents, just as the federal government can't take state land, it can't take state data 
by mandate. That that application of the anti-commandeering rule got some testing in the sanctuary city litigation, which which involved a series of other kind of administrative law problems that kind of subordinated the constitutional question a little bit. So it didn't get kind of really full-throated airing and resolution. Uh, but I argue in the piece that that rule should apply should apply to data. And when you apply the anti-commandeering rule to data, you empower cities to say data, this is the case of sanctuary cities, for instance, data cities collect in order to do local policing, doesn't need by mandate to be turned over to federal immigration officials for immigration purposes. Now, the reason cities said they wanted to retain their data was because they said, if individuals in our communities think that any interaction with police could be turned over to federal immigration agents, they're not going to interact with the police. They're not going to be witnesses. They're not going to report crimes of which they've been victims, etc. So cities had real reasons to want to withhold in information about their constituents from federal immigration agents. You alluded to this in your question. The federal government didn't take this very well. Um, and this is across administrations. This started in the Obama administration and continued into the Trump administration. Federal immigration agents have gotten increasingly creative about how they obtain data collected by city and state police officers to use for immigration purposes. And their need for that data makes sense. The number of city and state police officers dwarfs the number of federal immigration agents. So they want to use this as a kind of force multiplier. And, and I document in the article a series of increasingly kind of creative tactics and legal arguments that the federal government used to try to gain access to data collected by state police officers without the consent of, of city or state officials. And I wanted to quickly address the issue of immigration. Often we see in these contexts and your discussion, it's always an immigration nexus. Is that just a common trend or is there a reason for that? Well, this raises another, I think, really interesting issue from a federalism perspective, which is when we talk about cooperative federalism, we frequently assume that the federal government holds a lot of the power in the federal-state relationship because the federal government is typically funding a substantial share of programs like Medicaid, for instance, which is one of our biggest cooperative federalism programs. What's interesting about immigration and cooperation between the federal government's and states with respect to immigration is that cities and states hold a tremendous amount of power. For the force multiplier reason I was just describing, cities and states have way more boots on the ground, and the federal government wants access to city and state police officers in order to accomplish its federal immigration objectives. This was a case where you really saw cities and states flexing that muscle, uh, leveraging the power they had. They have the data that the federal government desperately wants. And you started to see a realization that they could withhold that data if it better suited their local policy. And, and you saw the federal government really take umbrage at that idea, you know, in, in the sanctuary city case and in a, in a separate case involving a program called Secure Communities, which I discuss in, in the piece as well. But yeah, I, I think one of the reasons immigration keeps popping up in questions about data federalism is because it's an area where cities and states hold the cards, have the power, and um, have been flexing their muscle. Yeah, absolutely. And if you could ex actually expand upon the Secure Communities Program, because it was incredibly fascinating how it didn't arise through legislation, but through, through these voluntary agreements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of federal-state collaborations arise, and I've documented this phenomenon in previous work as well, arise through what I call intergovernmental agreements. You can think about them as treaties for domestic intergovernmental relations. You know, just as the United States and Canada enter into a treaty to facilitate some cooperative project, the federal government and states and federal government and cities enter into formal legal documents that resemble treaties or contracts to structure their cooperative programs. I mean, so many of these programs are incredibly complex. So you need a document that kind of specifies the terms and conditions, the roles and responsibilities, the 
bureaucratic structure that will govern the program. And you see a lot of intergovernmental agreements structuring interactions in the world of immigration, where, as I said, the federal government really wants to be able to use uh, state policing resources to advance its immigration objectives. Okay, so Secure Communities was a program that, in essence, told states, if you turn over information, certain information about people in your communities who, for instance, you have placed under arrest to federal immigration officials so that they know when there's a person who's on their radar that they want to you know, are, have, been, have been looking for, so that they know if that person's, for instance, in the custody of a city of Chicago police officer, say. The federal government said, if you, tur- if you turn over that information, we will agree to a set of priorities for immigration enforcement. And we'll, we'll dedicate our resources first and foremost to immigration offenders who have serious criminal records. You know, that was the highest priority category. So it's kind of like exchanging state data for federal prioritization that states were more comfortable with. And so that's memorialized in the Secure Communities Agreements. And the agreements include a termination provision. Several states and some cities found that the federal government was using the data that it was turning over in the program for reasons that weren't consistent with the set of priorities outlined in the intergovernmental agreements and exercised their rights under the termination clause to withdraw from the program. In response, and this is taking place during the Obama administration, in response, the Obama administration said, we've reassessed this program. And although we initiated it through these voluntary intergovernmental agreements, through these kind of bilateral contracts, we've actually concluded that the program's no longer voluntary that cities and states don't have the option to opt out of this program. Now, there's some complicated sort of bureaucratic reasons that it was really hard for cities and states not to participate and that kind of buttressed that argument made by the federal government, which I'm happy to get into. But really? the interesting kind of bottom line is that the federal government initially structured this program as a voluntary program. I think intu- intuiting the argument I make in my piece, which is that taking a state's data is the same as taking a state's legislative authority or its land or its other assets. It's autonomy somewhat there. It's Uh mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then later kind of backtracked on that argument. So it shows both the desperation of the federal government for data held by cities and states and also the willingness of the federal government in certain circumstances to um, really test the legal waters. And, and see if the anti-commandeering rule applies to, to data in the way that it applies to other forms of state power and other state assets. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And this, I guess, push from the federal government for this data also arose through the issuing of subpoenas and through the use of a certain U.S. code, correct? Yeah, so this is a kind of coda to the secure communities fights that cities and states were having with the federal government. So... After secure communities, a lot of cities said, you know, we don't want to participate in this program. And then the federal government said that 8 U.S.C. 1373, a provision of our federal immigration law that was enacted in the 1990s, requires, in effect, states to let their police officers and other low-level officials to decide for themselves whether they want to turn over information to the federal government. So the provision says that a city or state cannot restrict in any way the sharing of information by one of their employees with federal immigration agents. This precipitated the sanctuary cities litigation that I was talking about earlier, because this provision, in effect, prevented states from withholding information, from prohibiting information sharing by their officials. When cities like the city of Chicago, uh, my, my home city, said, you know, we are going to restrict information sharing regardless of 8 U.S.C. 1373. The federal government threatened a variety of really punitive consequences, and the city sued to test its right to withhold 
that information. As that litigation was happening, um, and this goes to the subpoena point that you mentioned, as that litigation was happening, and as cities and states who were challenging at USC 1373, as applied in this particular context, were succeeding, the city of Chicago succeeded, several other cities succeeded as well, the federal government got a notch more creative, and it started subpoenaing the same information that cities were trying to withhold from city sheriffs and other custodians of people, you know, uh, jail, jail and prison custodians. And it really put these individuals on the hot seat, right? Because if you decline a subpoena, you could be held in contempt of court. So this is the federal government trying to just use another, yet another legal device, not an instruction, not a federal statute, but this kind of judicial device of subpoenas to get the very information that cities and states were trying to withhold and that courts were saying they were permitted to withhold. So the subpoena cases that I, that I talk about that were happening in kind of, you know, 2018, 2019, just represent the kind of evolution of the federal government's increasingly creative strategies for getting access to the city and state data. Increasingly creative and aggressive, for sure. So we've seen that data comes in many shapes and forms. We've seen that governments have many uses for this and that state governments have fought out and pushed back a bit against federal claims. But federalism often is seen as a creation of congressional will or they'll create some type of structure. But in your analysis and your investigation into this market, there is no real congressional structure here, correct? Yeah. So I'm really glad you raised that because this is another part of the story of data federalism that I found really fascinating, which is just asking the really simple question, how are regulations on the uses of data exchanged between governments made? And who enforces them? And where can I find them? You know, I just ask the basic questions of like, if you're a person whose data, who, who worries that their data is, you know, moving between governments in one of these data pools, maybe you think there's some inaccurate data in one of these data pools and you wish to correct it. Or maybe you think you've been the subject of policing in ways that, that, that relied on data improperly exchanged between governments. You want to know how, what are the rules that restrict government use of this data and how are those rules made? So the first thing you would say is like, are they made by Congress or are they made by a state legislature? And the answer that I found and I recount in the paper is that they're not made by Congress for the most part, and they're not made by state legislatures. Instead, they're kind of conceptualized within federal and state administrative agencies. And it's the intergovernmental agreements that actually specify what data is going to be exchanged that are the document that regulates how that data can be used. So the regulatory approach to data is not legislative. It's more contractual. You know, it's like the terms contained in the agreement. Those are the only terms that would restrict the recipient government from using data in a way that the giving government, you know, dislikes. Yeah, it's a lot of discretionary power. It's a lot of discretionary power. And then we can wonder, as a next step, we would wonder, well, how are those intergovernmental agreements written? Um, and if you want to know that, you read my other article, Federalism by Contract. The answer is not through very structured processes. So um, there are lots of reasons to worry about the quality of the kind of and thoughtfulness of the government regulation that's contained in these agreements. But regarding this statutory uh, minimalism and the structure you describe. Uh, but before we dive into it, I had to ask and wonder, has Congress tried previously to explicitly authorize data sharing? Um, I know you spoke about the NCIC's past attempts, and what challenges did they have there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a couple of areas where the federal government has regulated more tightly the flow of data, at least out of the federal government and to states, and to some degree, from states to the federal government. A good example is DNA data. DNA data is quite tightly regulated by statute, and there are real privacy controls imposed by federal law. But that's really the exception that proves the rule. For the most part, data pools and data exchanges develop and expand through accretion. 
So the National Crime Information Center, I just want to put in a little plug for people who are interested in thinking about federalism and data to think about the National Crime Information Center, because I think it's the biggest cooperative federalism program that nobody ever talks about. It's this enormous, anytime, you know, you're stopped by a police officer and a kind of classic Terry stop in your car because your light is out or, you know, walking down the street and they ask for your driver's license and they run your driver's license, they're running your information through either the National Crime Information Center or a database connected to it. So this is like really the, the kind of bread and butter of beat policing. And it collects data from jurisdictions across the country. So the National Crime Information Center is initially kind of invented at the sort of, maybe we could say like the dawn of the computing age, you know, right? Yeah. As people were kind of realizing like we can store much more data in computerized form than in, you know, paper. And the thought was just, you know, there's like a pilot project. It was just, you know, maybe states could send their data to the FBI and FBI could send their data to the states. And it started out just as this kind of dinky little program. But as, you know, with the history of computing generally, it grew sort of just exponentially. And, you know, there's a classic regulatory story about how government regulation lags technological innovation. I think you see some of that here. You know, the government is, and, and when I say the government, our governments, the federal government and states are anxious about pretermitting technological progress by too aggressive kind of gatekeeping regulation. So maybe you see that here. I think the other thing that got unwieldy, though, is that it's not a federal asset. You know, the NCIC is a way of networking together federal, state, and local databases. So I think there was just a degree of uh, concern about how much control the federal government could exercise over it. And that's particularly true because the initial database was structured through intergovernmental agreements. And so, you know, and I don't think even our members of Congress really cognize the relationship between their laws and intergovernmental agreements, which operationalize the programs that they participate in or kind of conceptualize. And as you just mentioned before, this trade-offs between uh, not inhibiting innovation, but also being like rights protective, it's very, I guess, innate with the technological field. Uh, you, you describe two exceptions to privacy statutes that kind of illustrate the issues with legislating in this field. Yeah. So there's a kind of privacy, federal privacy statute, the Privacy Act, which sets forth a rough infrastructure for regulating the federal government's own possession of data. The blind spots that I point to in the Privacy Act include no restrictions on the federal government's receipt of data from cities and states. So the Privacy Act doesn't really envision that the federal government might, you know, come come to possess data from cities and states and structure the ways, for instance, that the federal government should engage in those negotiations or what kinds of restrictions it should place on the exchange of data. So I think it's I think it's probably a failure of imagination. And maybe, you know, one of the goals of this piece is to collect all of these instances of data exchange between the federal government and the states so that maybe the Congress people who, in the case of the FBI's effort to access state DMV photos, maybe those Congress people can say, hey, this isn't an isolated problem. This is happening in lots of areas and lots of sectors. And maybe we do need some transubstantive legislation or an amendment to the Privacy Act that can at least acknowledge that this data sharing is happening. So nothing in the Privacy Act would have prevented the FBI from asking, you know, soliciting data from state DMVs. And that's the kind, that's the kind of one blind spot. It doesn't restrict the federal government's access to data from cities or states. In general, our privacy regulations with respect to data in the federal government are procedural. They require agencies to disclose what data they're collecting and how they plan to use that data. One of the problems that I identify is that when agencies disclose data in their databases that is sourced from cities and states, it, it says it so generically. You know, these disclosures say, 
you know, lists the sources of data and it's like collection from individuals, collection from corporations, collection from cities and states. And that's it. You know, it doesn't say cross-reference the intergovernmental agreement or <laughs> specify the terms under which the data has been shared or even what data is being shared from each of those sources. You know, so these proceduralized restrictions that just say use disclosure as a sort of lodestar don't remotely clarify what's going on in the world of intergovernmental data exchange. But simply saying that you're getting the data from cities and states is enough to comply with federal law. And that's such an interesting ecosystem. So you've described how these intergovernmental agreements kind of shape the foundation. But from there, you speak about this reconstruction from like the institutional perspective that kind of manages the day-to-day bureaucracy. I think you mm-hmm. call it the cross-governmental bureaucracy. And I was wondering if you could expand upon that and the role of fusion centers and kind of like their mischaracterization we often see. Yeah. Okay, great. I love to talk about fusion centers. So after I investigate, how does data get exchanged and where are the rules of those exchanges memorialized and the restrictions on data use that might protect the data's, the person who produced the data, the data subject? And I conclude those are mostly intergovernmental agreements, not statutes. Then I ask, okay, now we have this big pool of data um, or network of databases. How is that managed on an ongoing basis? And what I find is that these cross-governmental pools, these cross-governmental assets, have given rise to cross-governmental forms of management, what I call cross-governmental bureaucracies. So the NCIC is largely governed by a council comprised of federal, state, and local law enforcement representatives that decide the content of the agreements between the federal government and states that provide access to the data pool, and in so doing, specify any regulations on that data. So, you know, that's an example of a cross-governmental bureaucracy, a kind of device that's used to solve this problem of, you know, we can't have the federal government managing without state Mm -hmm. or local input, this joint asset. We can't have states managing it without federal input. So we have this kind of council that can take stock of all of the interests, you know, at least theoretically, of the government's contributing data to the data pool. Fusion centers are another kind of law enforcement data pool. They arose after 9-11 when there was great concern about deficiencies in both horizontal information sharing, you know, information sharing between various federal agencies, but also vertical information sharing. You know, the idea was some local police departments had information about the perpetrators Mm -hmm. of 9-11 that wasn't kind of consolidated. So the idea behind fusion centers is to, you know, it's it's what they sound like, fuse together. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Fuse together data from various uh, law enforcement agencies trying to trying to understand where fusion centers come from what their legal structure is is quite challenging and so so for instance in a lot of recitations of fusion centers so there are between 70 and 80 of them and they're decentralized you know they're not they're not federal agencies they are definitively not federal agencies um, says the federal government so then the assumption is by process of elimination they're state agencies Well, a lot of state police departments are not kind of specifically authorized in their scope of activities in the way that, like, we think about federal administrative programs being authorized, you know, by statutes and say, like, you can do X and Y and you can't do Z, whatever, these express authorizations. Instead, it's a sort of residual power. And a lot of fusion centers have kind of not, you know, their states haven't passed laws that say, we create the Nevada Fusion Center. Instead, the fusion center is sort of stood up by agreements among state law enforcement agencies that then the federal federal law enforcement agencies are sort of invited to join. So here again, we see kind of intergovernmental agreements and intragovernmental agreements, you know, among the different federal and state agencies involved, sort of serving almost a lawmaking function. They're really serving as the source of authorization for these centers. As a result, You know, when sometimes people say fusion centers are creatures of state government, as if they're 
disciplined and domesticated by the states. In fact, I think they really sit in this kind of interstitial space. I don't think they really have a jurisdictional home in the way that we think administrative bureaucracies do, because they kind of take advantage of this fact that policing often happens in this sort of residual space. Yeah, so as a result, the governance of these fusion centers is typically specified just in the intergovernmental agreement and not in some other, you know, state statute or federal statute. And there's also a lot of intermingling as well, the exchange of like governmental personnel between different branches, and it's a lot harder to differentiate. Yeah, it's one of the areas in which I have real concern about federalism. You know, I, my general view of federalism is like, it's the system we have. And we can direct it toward normatively good ends if we manage it correctly, and we can direct it to normatively bad ends, just like any other kind of system of government. So I don't talk in this register that's like, federalism is good or bad. But I do try to identify both benefits and drawbacks of the systems that we have, especially the unknown aspects. And I think, you know, one drawback of these cross-governmental bureaucracies is we rely for accountability on a kind of clear line of sight between elected officials and administrative agents. And when you get this kind of intermixing that both institutions like the NCIC and um, fusion centers, which are, you know, even more informal and we know even less about them, you lose that clear line of sight. So it becomes really challenging to know when a, an official, for instance, collects information in violation of a person's constitutional rights or even just the restrictions specified in the fusion center's intergovernmental agreement. It's not totally clear was that official acting on behalf of the fusion center, on behalf of the state government, on behalf of the federal government, and who who holds that official accountable? Who exercises oversight and how and how is that oversight pursued? So given these challenges that federalism has faced with the emergence of these data markets, do we have to rethink about a new approach to this? Does federalism not work? Uh, does the 10th Amendment and other principles fall short? Or does it just require some type of adaption? I actually think this is an area, you know, the, the anti-commandeering rule is pretty controversial among federalism scholars. I think this is a very compelling example of the potentially democracy-forcing function of the anti-commandeering rule. Because when the federal government can simply take data from cities and states, then data exchange happens in a field of really low salience. It really does happen in the kind of deep corners of the immigration bureaucracy or city and state policing bureaucracies. You know, I recount in the paper kind of line level bureaucrats, federal immigration agents coordinating with line level civil police office, you know, city and state police officers to do some kind of casual information exchange. That's not really transparent. It's not highly regulated. It's really hard to enforce sort of individual Informal. rights and civil yeah. liberties. Yeah. Informality can be good in government and it can also be bad. So I think that having good, robust intergovernmental agreements that are collected and disclosed in the way that other law-creating documents are, you know, like regulations are promulgated and then enumerated in the CFR and statutes are passed and then collected in the U.S. Code. I think if we can have a way of collecting and disclosing intergovernmental agreements, they can be a decent law-creating device. You know, then the people writing the agreement will take really seriously the need to serve a kind of legislative function in structuring these data transactions and to answer the questions not just about, you know, how much could this data benefit federal immigration agents or police officers, but how do we take stock of the interest of all the other stakeholders involved? Most importantly, the data subjects. The countervailing interests are always there and they should be accounted for. And yeah. when you speak about constitutional limitations, the anti-commandeering arises numerous times. But the role of anti-coercion and the Pennhurst rule uh, have certain limitations here in the way courts yeah. view them, correct? Particularly data? Yeah, yeah. Well, th th this is great. This is another kind of, you know, for constitutional law nerds, you know, I think this is a fun a fun problem. I could give it on as a kind of hypothetical in my constitutional law exam. Poor students. So when we, <laughs> listen up, students. Okay. No. So when we talk about 
There's another constitutional federalism rule called the anti-coercion rule. It was most famously at play in the major challenge to the Affordable Care Act, and specifically the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. The rule basically says, just as the federal government can't force cities and states to participate in cooperative federalism programs, it can't coerce them into participating in cooperative federalism programs. I sort of think about this as being a general voluntariness principle. You know, you can't force, you can't coerce. The Pennhurst rule says when you put conditions on cooperative federalism programs, they have to be clearly expressed. It's kind of like you can't coerce, you can't force, you can't coerce, you can't deceive states into joining these programs. It just has to be voluntary. But if you asked like a student and most maybe federalism scholars and most maybe judges, what is the mechanism of coercion in these intergovernmental programs? They would say money. Because that, what, that's what was at issue in Medicaid. The Affordable Care Act said states have the option to expand their Medicaid programs or not. But if they choose not to expand Medicaid, uh, expand Medicaid to new populations, then the federal government threatened to withhold funding for even their original Medicaid programs. And so the idea was it was improperly leveraging funding that states were already receiving pursuant to other aspects of the Medicaid program in order to, the claim was, coerce states into expanding to new populations. That's just one application of the principle motivating the case, which is just that you can't force or coerce or deceive states into joining cooperative programs. So coercion can happen in a bunch of different ways. The move I make in the paper from a doctrinal perspective is to suggest that the federal government, for instance, threatening to withhold state access to data could be just as coercive as threatening to withhold state access to money. Coming back to where we started our conversation, the idea is that data is a governmental asset and a form of governmental power that is different in significant ways from money or from land or from administrative authority or capacity, but it's also similar in significant respects. One way in which it's similar, one way in which data is similar to money, is data can be leveraged to coercive effect. So I try to, pre I try to make that argument um, specifically about the um, Secure Communities Program that we were talking about earlier in the federal government's kind of effort to force states to remain in that program. Data is power at the end of the day, and this is just a power struggle uh, in, some in, in some instances. And I guess to wrap it up, regarding the existing constitutional doctrines, what kind of structural issues do we see with federalism uh, failing to address moving forward regarding data? Yeah, great question. So one of the takeaways I hope readers draw from this article is that constitutional federalism doctrine only does so much that new forms of governmental power will always become part of federal state tussles and our governing institutions will adapt to them. I think we need to think about constitutional doctrine and how it structures those interactions between governments. But I think we also need to see the ways that, for instance, in response to data pools, our governments devised new administrative forms, ways of managing cross-governmental programs to match the cross-governmental character of the underlying asset. And so we federalism scholars, I think, need to think as much about the appropriate administrative, legislative, lawmaking structures that shape cross-governmental programs and the management of cross-governmental assets as we need to think about the kind of constitutional principles. So federalism is a system of government. It's a way of structuring how government manages its assets. And we should think really deeply about the structural choices that our governments have made and how they have come to be. This was fantastic. Thank you very much, Bridget. No problem. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare.
you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.